0: Welcome to Finkelstein and Finkelstein. My name is Russ Finkelstein. I'm a journalist. And if you're new here, this is a podcast where I argue with my conservative father about politics. This week, we have a very special guest, Simon Ostrovsky. He's a Soviet-born, American-raised journalist who's covered Russia, Ukraine, and lots of other places in the former Soviet Union.
1: Norm, you live in California? Yep, San
2: Diego. Uh, San
1: Diego has the same population as Estonia. I discovered once. Oh wow. I was trying to find a city that had roughly the same population as Estonia so that I could belittle Estonia. <laughs> <laughs> San Diego is what I came up with. The
2: dogs say good night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful
0: world. Welcome, Simon, our second guest on Finkelstein and Finkelstein. Actually, the first non-Finkelstein guest. Yeah. Hey, guys. (laughs) Big step. But unfortunately, uh, we still have an all-Jewish, or fortunately, I guess, depending on how you look at it, uh, an all-Jewish guest list.
1: Yeah, I was worried. I was worried that uh, three, three grumpy Jews might create a singularity on one podcast, but we'll try to get through it and stay chipper.
0: Simon, so, mean, I don't know if we ever talked about this, but my, my last day, I worked at Vice News briefly for a few months, and uh, my, my job involved receiving the dispatches that you were sending, which are incredible, uh, and then I would use them for part of the thing I was editing together, which is called the News Capsule. Um, but my, actually, my last day there was the day that you got uh, kidnapped. Um, that day, when they you know, stopped everyone in the newsroom and said, like, okay, all hands on deck. Simon has been taken by these pro-Russia separatists in eastern Ukraine, um, and we need to like, come up with a press release, and nobody answer any media requests. And it got, things got very serious. Uh, I remember walking out of there and just thinking, like, oh, man. I hope I hope I hope Simon makes it happen. So I was very very glad. Uh, a few days it's, later, it's
1: nice of you to have been worrying about me when you were essentially what losing your job or. or. I, I just I, I think that
0: part part of my concern was like I looked around the room at like, you know, the managers in charge who were like barking out orders and having these conference calls, and I was like, Simon's life is in the hands of these these men. Mm-hmm. God, God help him, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it, it was a crazy time.
0: I'm glad you made it out of there.
1: Yeah, um, it was th- really thanks to um, all of the reporters who were on the ground uh, in Ukraine, because these rebels, so-called rebels, I later discovered that the man leading the group that kidnapped me um, was this guy, Igor Girkin, who was a former FSB officer from Russia, um that they were trying to put out this message of um we're freedom fighters fighting against the fascist junta, the ukrainians in kiev and we just wanna we're russians and ethnic russians in ukraine and we want to speak our language and 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 we're just trying to be free and you know that was the narrative that they hoped was being put out but as soon as they kidnapped me like their, their whole world collapsed, because that's all anybody cared about was American journal, journalists kidnapped in Ukraine, that's what all the headlines were every day um, until I was released, and it was because the, the reporters there were asking them questions about it and letting them know that um, they weren't going to let it go uh, because they would already kidnapped a bunch of Ukrainian journalists and Ukrainian activists, and It didn't change the news agenda. Nobody cared. So I I think they expected that the same thing would happen with me because they were very inexperienced at that point. Um, I I think basically they came to the conclusion after several days that they were
2: better off without me. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Uh, Can I ask Simon a question? Uh, Having firsthand knowledge, um, see, I hear the phrase... um, Uh, pro-Russian separatists, and and, and I don't accept that. My understanding is, or my my belief is, and it's really based on just uh, probably a lot of assumption, but is that these were Russians. I mean, (laughs) I I don't know how many actual pro-Russian separatists lived in Ukraine uh, that weren't Russian. Um, So that's my question.
1: I mean, it was a a Russian-led operation, and uh, there were key figures from Russia, um, I heard a recent interview with the guy, this guy Igor Girkin. I'm talking about from Russia, who read the so-called uprising in the town that I was kidnapped in. And I, I don't know if he's to be believed, but he was saying that one-third of his guys were uh, Russians and two-thirds of the guys uh, were people that they had recruited uh, in Ukraine. Um, and so... I think there was definitely a, a component of uh, people who had been recruited uh, in Ukraine, but it was a Russian-led operation. And then later on, when total war broke out, um, the Russians actually sent in uh, regular, regular troops. And I've done a whole investigation to, to, to prove that that's true. So we're not talking about like informal um, groups anymore. We're talking about key moments during the Battle of Ilovaisk in 2014 in the summer. And during the Battle of Debaltseve in, in 2015, they just sent the army across the border because their guys were losing.
0: Right, right. Yeah, and it, if you guys, if people listening to this or you, Dad, haven't seen Selfie Soldiers, which is Simon's documentary where he sort of retraces the um, social media footprint of... Uh, Russian soldier in Ukraine it's 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 fun to watch mm-hmm. right. and uh really really great journalism
2: right and they Thanks shot the down plug, man. <laughs> yeah no it was, yeah. it was really good they shot down a a, a a plane a civilian airliner and I think it was with a Russian missile right I mean yeah okay yeah, yeah. I mean so... I mean
1: yeah there's there's that there's that little one <laughs> the one where they shot down a Boeing and killed nearly 300 people right
0: So, Dad, as we talked about uh, in the last episode of this podcast, you grew up with uh, what may or may not have been a rational fear that the Soviet Union was going to bomb you into oblivion for the better part of your childhood. And a big part of your uh, political formation was sort of looking at the the U.S. role in uh, the Cold War.
2: Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it was a fear. It was more a concern. I mean, you know, as a kid, you don't, are not afraid of that. It's just something that, you know, you have to go through drills and all of that crap, get under your desk, like it's going to prevent a, a, a nuclear bomb from killing you. But yes, uh, the Cold War was a big part of that and uh, the U.S. versus the Soviet Union. So maybe that's where my strong nationalism comes from.
0: And where do you think that that uh, ended up the Cold War would you say that the United States won the Cold War
2: I think so I think uh, attributed probably to Reagan and Thatcher but uh, they uh, yeah I think the yeah clearly I mean the Soviet Union is no longer are they I mean right. I mean I remember Khrushchev pounding the, the table at the UN saying we will bury you and I think now his kid is a us citizen
0: yeah but the I guess the the if the idea was that we were going to secure the United States would secure like uh, hegemony and, and like national security uh, for Western alliances around the world, it, it's worth noting that that's not they haven't completely eradicated the threat of you know Moscow Russia um, up until now the decline of of Russia or its um, shrinking in terms of global influence maybe you can make the argument that that's good for the united states or it's good for u.s interests but is it good for the so good for the former soviet uh countries or russia and is it is it has it led to better stability and well-being for the people of those of that region
1: well i guess it just depends on how you define stability and well-being you know in my view um the world is much better off without the soviet union of course and the people of russia and the former soviet countries are much better off without the soviet union because it was a brutal totalitarian regime in which um you know people's uh, lives depended on the whims of uh, bureaucratic officials Um, who didn't really care for their well-being. I mean, look at this, the popularity of the HBO Chernobyl uh, TV show right now. I don't know if you guys are following it, but it sort of reminded everybody what the Soviet Union was actually all about. When faced with the world's worst radiological disaster, um, instead of doing everything they could to get people out of the area right away, they um, kept people in the in the zone for days in which you know they were poisoned and as a result of which thousands of people died because they didn't want to admit that a mistake had been made and it was only because the radiation was so severe and that it had been picked up in places like Sweden um, that they finally had to admit it otherwise they would have preferred to keep it secret and they would have kept their citizens in the area so as not to cause a panic that's how the that's how the Soviet Union worked like for all the faults of um, the United States and other Western democracies the what what the system brings to the table is uh, some level of accountability it's not always immediate and uh, it's not swift and it doesn't always even happen um, but for the most part you know there's this uh, mechanism uh, called an election um, which can sweep uh, bad actors away and replace them with people who are hopefully better and if they're not then the next election sweeps them away right the soviet union didn't have that sort of mechanism of of renewal it was a terrible terrible system and that's the reason that it collapsed um has there been a lot of uh, human strife and suffering as a result of the collapse of the soviet union yes absolutely i think those two things can exist next to each other, and they don't have to uh, necessarily be mutually exclusive.
0: Yeah. Um, one of the things I think is, like, uh, just an interesting evolution from the American mindset is the idea that um, that there's an enemy in Russia, and, you know, I think over the years there's, like, these stereotypes of, like, the Russian spy. Uh, I'm sure, like, a- every... good action movie from the 80s uh, before they made the turn to making the enemy out to be uh, an Islamic terrorist. It it used to always be like Russians that were you know, trying to pull one over. Um, And then I remember like I think it was like before the Winter Olympics in Sochi, a lot of attention was put on homophobia and these um, anti-gay measures in Russia. Uh, Simon, what do you make of that? What do you make of the critiques that come from the United States or the West that are sort of about Russian society or Russian life. Like, there's this Instagram account I follow. I don't, I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's called Look at This Russian or Look at That Russian or something. And it's, like, it's kind of funny, you know, but it's always, like, a drunk guy in a village doing a dance or, like, someone in Adidas jumpsuit who's also, like, shaved an adidas logo into his head or there's like a lot of dash cam footage you know and it's funny but sometimes i ask myself like is this racist against russians is that a thing
1: well i mean i think it's uh it's good that you bring that up because there is this concept that the um that you know many russians and um the kremlin and Russian media, particularly Russian state media, uh, are trying to um, pump up, which is this idea that there's something called Russophobia, this innate fear of, of Russia that sort of borders on some kind of a form of bigotry or discrimination or, or racism and uh, sort of sits alongside things like Islamophobia, and um, anti-Semitism and you know discrimination against black people on the pedestal of of hates that exist in the world, and I don't really buy it uh, at all. I mean, criticizing your uh, your adversary, but also a country that is, uh, in many instances, been a bad actor. And then just labeling it Russophobia is the same as um, is the same as you know many Israelis when they don't like to hear criticism of uh, Israel, uh, calling sort of any kind of anti-Zionist activity um, anti-Semitism. That's the tactic, and that's actually where they learned it. I think is probably from Israel, and. Um, in, in today's arms race of victimhood, you know, everybody's got to have a grievance that they can bring to the Internet and, and try to spread far and wide in order to make people feel like, uh, um, you know, that they've got, a, they've got a reason to be upset. Um, Russia is a, is, a, is a big country despite the fact that the former Soviet Union fell apart, it still has the largest land mass in the world. It's got an economy the size of Italy's, but that's another thing. Uh, but it's, hard to, it's hard to claim that um, the Russian people are some oppressed underdog, which is you know how they're trying to portray themselves today. Um, I think that that's ridiculous.
0: Uh, so let's say, for example, you, I'm sure you remember um, this big push to draw attention to homophobia and these homophobic laws in Russia um, in like, you know, I guess it was like 2011, 12, 13. When was the Sochi Olympics? 2014, right? It's on even years. Um, So uh, there was this big push, as I'm sure we we all remember, to draw attention to the homophobia in Russia. One of the things I kind of found interesting about it was, yes, uh, human rights are important and we should, you know, Uh, pay attention to people that violate human rights and criticize them openly. Uh, But I don't know, like, I I did some work in Saudi Arabia, and people there kind of would make an argument about um, the specific attention on, let's say, like, women being able to drive, which was essentially that, like, the people making these critiques and criticisms, they don't necessarily have the interests of the Russian people or the Saudi people or Let's say in the case of Israel, the Israeli people at heart, when they lob these criticisms, it's more a way to um, ideologically uh, attack an adversary. Yeah, but that's
1: that's conspirological thinking. I mean, you know, people have, there there might be plenty of people out there who um, have a legitimate reason to be angry about Russia's... uh, um, gay propaganda law which is a law that exists on the books okay it's not something that people invented Um, and there may be others who uh, manipulate it for whatever their agenda might be Um, but uh, the the fact of the matter is is that the criticism doesn't stem from the agenda that some of the people might have it stems from the fact that um, Russia was genuinely passing those uh, those laws and uh, shutting down um, expression for homosexuals in Russia. Um, that, was, that was happening. Had they changed that, and had they not been doing that, people wouldn't be criticizing them for that. They'd be criticizing them for something else. During my time in Russia, um, I sort of covered uh, Russia for the Moscow Times from 2001 until 2004, Uh, We talked a lot about the clampdown on uh, the Yukos Oil Company, which had been nationalized and taken away from Russia's richest man, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. We talked about the Second Chechen War, which um, Russia um, uh, launched in in the North Caucasus, a a brutal war in which tens of thousands of people died. Um, And uh, we talked about the fact that already then, Uh, The FSB had started uh, tightening the screws um, uh, on control of the Internet to be able to monitor um, how people were communicating on the Internet by installing the system called first SORM 1 and then SORM 2 and requiring um, IP providers um, to essentially provide a direct channel to the Federal Security Service um, of all of their traffic. Those were the things we talked about. We talked about them because Russia was doing them, not because we had a Russophobic or anti-Russian agenda. And, you know, when, when we criticize the United States for similar types of uh, uh, activities, um, you know, you don't hear people talking about America-phobia. Those, they're, they're considered to be legitimate criticisms, like the war in Iraq. As a journalist, I covered both the war in Chechnya and I covered the war in Iraq. And, um, you know, people might call me a Russophobe for my coverage of Chechnya, but nobody ever called me uh, anti-American for my coverage of the war in Iraq. So, uh, you know, if you want to talk about double standards there, there's a, sometimes I think we're, we're maybe correcting too far to the other side.
0: I'm curious what you think about um, the Russian involvement in the election. It's become a very um, politically polarizing uh, issue, and... I guess there's one way to frame it, which is there's very clear-cut evidence that uh, you know Russia, Russian actors made a concerted effort to influence voters by publishing fake news and operating bots, and as to whether or not there was a direct, direct uh, link to the administration, I guess we could we've probably already gone on for hours about we could continue to do so, but um, Donald Trump and and the Republicans like to constantly point out that, you know, it's not that, the, that Russia was changing votes. It's not that they were going into voting machines and actually changing the result. They were just essentially posting things. I mean, the provable uh, intervention was that they were post, essentially posting things on social media.
1: The Obama administration was way too cautious in holding uh, Russia to account in the run-up to the 2016 election. Um, for the reason that they expected Hillary Clinton was going to win, and so they didn't want to make it seem like they were putting their um, foot on the scale. Uh, that was a mistake, as it turned out. Um, now the Trump administration uh, is doing everything uh, possible to protect, to minimize, and pretend that um, Russia wasn't involved in the in the 2016 election in, in Trump's favor and that's gonna turn out to be a mistake too and I think um, you know both parties need to realize that politics are supposed to stop uh, at the border and and that uh, countering foreign adversaries isn't you know partisan you can't you can't do that um, It's it's very it's very damaging and it's you know The whole mission of Russia uh, post, I guess, uh, its annexation of Crimea um, and its invasion of Eastern Ukraine uh, has been to divide and weaken uh, Western countries um, both by weakening their alliances with each other and weakening their societies from the inside and setting us off against each other. And um, they've been taking, you know, pretty clear steps to try to do that, even if you take the uh, some of the examples from the run-up to 2016, where they would arrange two different protest groups, like an Islamophobic group and and uh, and uh, and a Muslim group, to uh, protest against each other on opposite sides of a street in Texas. Um, you know that's just one tiny example, but that sort of explains to you their thinking, which is that uh, if uh, if they can if they can divide um, uh, Democrats and Republicans and set them off against each other, um, then that makes Russia, which has much much smaller resources than the United States, um, that much stronger. Because while we're busy fighting each other, um, we're not focusing on Russia. That's the thinking. It's a zero-sum game.
2: Yeah, I agree. I I agree 100% with that.
1: I hate to sound like uh, I'm defending Vladimir
0: Putin because it's obviously not my intention. But is it worth uh, thinking about, uh, Dad? When I asked you, like, is it wrong because Russia's doing it and they're an enemy, and so we need to bolster our our own national interests and defend against their attack, or is it, I guess, kind of part of my idea with talking about like whether or not the United States or the West won the, the Cold War? whether or not there should be a sort of de-escalation and we should also consider that the United States intervenes in other people's elections and politics. And that's also worthy of criticism. And it does kind of make it hard to make like a universalist or uh, international law argument that it's wrong when Russia does it, but not wrong when the United States does it. Simon, what do you think?
1: Well, I, I think we need to separate things a little bit here because, you know, potentially there have been instances where the United States has intervened in other people's, uh, elections in the past. Um, none are springing to mind. That's not to say that, you know, there aren't some glaring examples, um, but I think that, um, you know, most of the kind of American intervention that we're used to seeing, and the kind that I've witnessed in places like Ukraine, is uh, political pressure and and openly, you know, asking for things above board, rather than subversively, you know, hacking an internet system and, and uh, leaking the private communication of um, one of the parties involved. It's a very different type of behavior, like stealing... Yeah, I mean
0: yeah I mean, just speaking on like I spent a lot of time in Latin America uh, I lived in Chile, Argentina, Colombia, and now I've spent a lot of time in Brazil, and not a single one of those places hasn't uh, had you know uh, CIA backed coup or uh, military intelligence coordinated to gather information about like suppress its um, subversive quote unquote actors all in the framing of the cold war right like real legitimate military interventions targeted assassinations funding of right-wing death squads like that's all those are all real historical things that the united states is okay
1: i i don't think that we uh, that the united states should be involved in that kind of stuff of course and um and it needs to be condemned and i think it has been condemned on many occasions um I think the the issue here is that we can't just sort of raise our hands and give up and be like, well, Russians going to be Russians, um nothing we can do about it because hey, you know, we've done the same thing in the past. Like, you know, bad behavior on our part in the past isn't an excuse for other people's bad behavior in the present.
2: I agree 100% and I think Putin is notorious for, and, and it's not just interfering with elections. I mean, look at what's gone on around the world, you know, in, in, in Great Britain. He's poisoned people. He's, you know, he's assassinating people, um, you know, enemies, political enemies. And, and and I agree with Simon. It doesn't matter what we may have done in the past or didn't do. It's what's happening now, and we have to condemn it, and we have to do something to try and stop it. And I think sanctions is probably the only realistic approach we might have.
0: Simon, what do you make of sanctions? Is it counterproductive? Is it productive?
1: I think, um, I really support sanctions because they're a non-violent way of trying to do politics in the place of war. Right? So it's a better alternative than war. A lot of people think that sanctions aren't effective, but that's because they don't know what the behavior would have been like if the sanctions weren't there. So, you know, Russia hasn't capitulated, the sanctions aren't working. Well, maybe the point isn't necessarily for Russia to capitulate, but it's for Russia to think twice, like, oh, there's a price to pay if we do this. So certain things haven't been done. And so I remember um, during the war in eastern Ukraine, uh, after the annexation of Crimea and the war had just broken out, and uh, it was the summer of uh, 2014, and the Ukrainian military was on a forward march, closing in on the Russia-backed forces positions, when suddenly the, the tide turned, uh, Russia sent in regular troops from across the border, and, uh, because they sensed that the groups that they were backing in eastern Ukraine were losing, and they were suddenly on a march. And um, they were just taking back all of the territory that the Ukrainians had lost. And there was this sensation that, you know, give it a couple of weeks and they're already going to be in the capital in Kiev and uh, all chaos is going to break loose. And there was a real fear of, you know, a a complete occupation. And that's when um, Obama uh, imposed additional sanctions and uh, sanctions that, uh, could be very crippling to the Russian economy, and they had to they had to think twice about, you know, what they were going to continue because there was a forceful um, international reaction. And so critics would say that it didn't get the Russians out of Ukraine. That's true. But at least they're not at the Polish border either.
0: Fair. There's been a lot that's been happening in the Ukraine in the last few months, but maybe if you could just do like a very quick synopsis of uh like i just feel like the ukraine was very heavy in the consciousness of people who follow international politics what was it like in early 2014 uh when they first had the uprising um and and it it was kind of being described as like what the arab spring was to the middle east or something to that effect uh for ukraine uh and they've had obviously like a series of elections and an ongoing armed conflict and what exactly is it that how, how would you summarize those few years
1: oh uh, you mean sort of what was uh what caused the uprising in ukraine yeah what caused
0: it and how did it shift into being a sort of like armed standoff with russia and now um from what i understand it's like you know a lot of political turmoil that sort of revolves around corruption and politicians alliances with moscow is that is that fair fair uh, yeah
1: i think there was a couple of things going on in in ukraine at that time and in russia and the the protests in ukraine started uh over european integration a lot of people want you to think that it's nato expansion that forced russia's hand um uh to get involved in ukraine militarily but uh the actual fact is that uh, the former president Viktor yanukovych had promised his people um a trade deal with the eu and a path to eu membership um that would improve the economy because the economy was in the tank and he was very unpopular and so for about well i want to say two years but at the very least a year he'd been uh, promising um, ukrainians a deal that was going to be signed in lithuania and literally at the 11th hour the the night before he was was supposed to sign this trade agreement with the EU um, he backed out of it under pressure from Putin. Putin gave him a 9 billion dollar loan and said you need to join our Eurasian Union instead of um, making deals with the European Union and he went back on everything he'd been saying for months and months and you can imagine how that you know would have angered a lot of people and in any country people would come out into um into the streets to protest something like that um you know i can't think of a comparative policy uh in the united states you know that you had been working towards for a long time and then somebody backed out of the president backs out of it and you know people come out into the streets. so nothing really unusual about the fact that people came out into the streets over that um, what was unusual was that uh, Yanukovych decided to use force to disperse the protesters and that's what really sparked the revolution because that make, made people um, very angry and so you know it was double the numbers the next day and, and then they created an encampment and then they just refused to leave. Had, had the Yanukovych government handled that protest differently I think things would have looked very different today. Um, but as it, as it happened, uh, the, the, the protests turned into clashes, turned into a revolution. Yanukovych was chased out of the country. This was Putin's uh, man uh, in Ukraine, and he was uh, angered by what had happened. And so you know, the Russian media went full tilt, branding uh, the Ukrainians as a fascist junta and a coup, and um, decided was, to step in and annex uh, Crimea at that point.
0: Sorry to interrupt, but would would it be fair, or was there any like uh, traces of evidence that there was like a neo-Nazi, neo-fascist, uh, ultra-right wing component to the revolution, or had parts of the movement been hijacked, or when it became like a more of an armed struggle, was that a part of the? Oh, absolutely. There was
1: a there was a there was a group called the Right Sector, um, you know. So they're not they weren't very shy about their far right um, leanings. Uh, it was one of many groups that were uh, involved in the revolution, um, and so of course the the Kremlin um, propaganda focused on the Right Sector and tried to brand the entire up- uprising, which was started by students. Um, uh, as, as, a, as a far-right Nazi movement um, t- against Russia-speakers. Uh, so, you know, if you're going to tell a lie, there's always got to be an element of truth in it to make it believable. And, and that's how they did it. But it'd kind of, it'd kind of be like if uh, the um, Russian news networks and, and the Kremlin, um, you know, started talking about all, American, all Americans as uh, Nazis, um, because, you know, we have people like Richard Spencer, et cetera, et cetera, in this country.
0: Okay, so fast-forwarding along a little bit, how, how would you describe the evolution of the armed conflict and the quagmire that has, has sprung from it?
1: Well, it's very simple. I mean, things could have ended um, with uh, Yanukovych fleeing the country and new people coming to power. Um, but instead, uh, Russia invaded and annexed Crimea and, um, and then start, these operations started in eastern Ukraine that looked very similar to what was happening in Crimea and so at that point the Ukrainian government decided that it was going to, Ukrainian government and Ukrainians, volunteers, decided that they were going to respond to that with force. That's how the war started.
2: It's interesting that the term annexed Crimea is always used. I mean, it sounds so peaceful, but I mean, in actuality, Russia just came in and took over, right?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that's what I'm saying. They invaded and annexed Crimea. Their their troops were there, the little green men, remember? The guys wearing masks with no flag patches, surrounded Ukrainian military bases, uh, essentially starved them into submission. Um, and uh, put their troops in key locations all over the peninsula to uh, make sure that they had total control. And the Ukrainians never got the order to resist or to fire. And you know, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but as a result, the Russians were able to take the territory with minimum casualties. I think there was a couple of uh, people that they disappeared uh, as part of their operation. Um, But there weren't sort of pitched battles or anything like that. And um, what about like politically what's been happening
0: in the last? I mean, I I understand they just had a presidential election uh, and they elected a a TV actor who plays a president in real life um, and that he's kind of run on a platform of like resistance to Putin or resistance to um, influence from Russia What's kind of been happening, like let's just say, in elect, elected politics since uh, well, the, the taking of Crimea? Yeah,
1: the 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 new president is really an interesting character because his only experience um, in politics uh, up until now has been playing president in a popular television show. So it's kind of be like, you know, if uh, if Kevin Spacey, pre Me Too. Hmm. <laughs> ran for president uh, based on, um, you know, the House of Cards series. The the TV shows are very, very different, of course. The plots couldn't be more different um, because, you know, Kevin Spacey played this nefarious kind of president um, who was always plotting and, and manipulating in the background. And the character of the current Ukrainian president was that of an ordinary history teacher who's so tired of corruption Um, that he just wants, like, a regular person running the country who's not going to kowtow to the oligarchs and all of the interest groups, and he's going to fight them. And there's, like, there's even a scene where he he walks, I think at the end of the third season, where he walks into Parliament, which is stacked with all these, like, oligarch cronies, and uh, he, like, opens fire on all of the oligarchs (laughs) and just, like, murders a ton of people. But the the, the show is actually a comedy. It's funny. It's...
2: uh,
1: (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, it's it's in a way it's nothing like House of Cards, but the other interesting point is that he named his political party after his TV show. <laughs> so, you know, if we were to continue the the parallel, it would be Kevin Spacey running for president and creating a political party called House of Cards.
2: Right. And
0: and is part of their like is part of his agenda um, like taking back Crimea or is it like, is there like a military strategy that involves like open combat or is it more just political reforms in the territories currently held by the Ukrainian military?
1: No, no, I think he's a populist in the original sense of the uh, word in, in, in that he makes big promises that he has um, no clear way of actually making, um, happen. So, you know, he'll say, we're going to return Eastern Ukraine and we're going to return Crimea and, um, we're not going to give up an inch of our territory, um, but I'm going to negotiate an end to this war type of stuff. You know, sort of stuff that seems a little bit mutually exclusive, but he doesn't really have an answer for that. He, he says, I think he's got really good, um, Uh, advisors in the sense of like pollsters and uh, they tell him what the people want to hear and he says it
0: and and is there like a, a feeling or a sense in ukraine that the united states or nato or the west has left them hanging when it comes to these armed conflicts do they feel like hung out to dry by the western allies
1: many people do yeah but many people are also very angry with the previous administration, which is why this current president um, did so well in the elections. He got 73% of the vote in the, in the second round, which is unheard of. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, people have felt hung out to dry um, by the West. And as a foreign correspondent when I'm there, sometimes that's directed at me. And I, I'm always like, hey, if you feel hung out to dry by somebody, it's Russia. Um, They're the ones who invaded your country. But I don't think that's a very helpful (laughs) (laughs) comment, of course. You know, the the Hmm. one thing that you do hear a lot of Ukrainians bring up is something called the Budapest Memorandum, um, which was a document that was signed by Russia, the United States, the United Kingdom, and uh, Ukraine, um, when Ukraine handed over its nuclear weapons to Russia. Uh, as part of a deal um, to control the Soviet Union's uh, nuclear arsenal and make sure that it was in the hands of only one country, Russia. And so Russia committed to protecting, uh, or, or rather respecting, Ukraine's territorial integrity alongside America and Britain in exchange for its nuclear weapons. And that promise has obviously been broken by Russia. But the reason they're angry with America and the UK is that they were signatories too and they feel like they haven't done enough um, to hold their end of that bargain. Because if you think about it, if Ukraine had kept its nuclear arsenal, there's no way that anybody would have um, invaded it. That's just how nuclear arsenals work. There's not a single country in the world that has one that's been invaded um, by another country. That's what they're for.
0: Dad, uh, in a previous episode, you've said that you think that like Donald Trump's biggest mistake was uh, the comments he made about Putin and Helsinki and just sort of the whole uh, handling of of international relations as it relates to Putin and, uh, you know, the way that uh, Putin has violated the, in- the uh, um, interests and alliances with our allies do you care about this conflict in Ukraine? Do you does what the process that Simon's describing irk you and make you feel uh like you wish US foreign policy was more robust in defending uh Western interests in Ukraine?
2: Of course, I do. I mean I but didn't we give if I remember correctly, uh, Trump gave a lot of uh, weaponry to the Ukraine. Um to cause uh, i think as some kind of uh get back at putin um but yes of course i do i think that nato basically has collapsed i mean i i think um that that uh, budapest memorandum as simon has referred to is it, it was clearly breached and we did nothing and uh And and that's, you know, when you got a bully, like, and that's what Putin is, and you let him take an inch, they're going to keep coming, they're going to keep taking. And I mean, you know, I mean, that that was the whole theory behind the Vietnam War. So I'm somewhat reluctant to say we should, we should get involved to that degree, we shouldn't get into a war over it. But I think we, we needed to um, take more uh, robust steps. and, And I think that fell on Obama.
0: Simon, between Obama and Trump, what has the impact been in the different strategies or or um, pragmatic measures taken?
1: Well, Trump has been a real reluctant supporter of Ukrainian sovereignty. Essentially, Congress has forced his hand on that, and he did give um, he did up uh, military support to Ukraine under immense pressure, um, under immense bipartisan pressure. Um, partially to do with uh, the Russian interference in the 2016 elections. But that's a consequence of uh, uh, the Obama policy as well, because the Obama policy was very cautious internationally. um, And I think uh, his uh, sort of slow action in in Ukraine, um, even in terms of giving them military support, because the difference between the assistance we were giving under Obama and the assistance we're giving now is that um, lethal weapons weren't part of the package under Obama. I think as a consequence of the mistake that he made with drawing a red line in Syria in 2012 and then not acting on it, um, he became worried about um, you know, acting anywhere, uh, even when it was the right thing to do. And so he had a very weak foreign policy, and he destroyed American credibility by drawing that red line in Syria, and then not acting on it. And so that emboldened people like Putin, um, who saw that uh, he didn't have the cojones to follow through on on, on uh, what he was saying. And I think it made it possible for Putin to make the decision to annex Crimea and go into Ukraine. Um, but... Trump's problem is is that uh, he thinks that you know Russian assistance to his campaign um, reflects badly on him, and therefore he doesn't want to admit that it's real. And therefore, um, somehow you know countering Russia in any serious way is some kind of an admission of the fact that they um, helped him. And I think it's all very complicated psychologically in his mind and as a result he's only ever taken action against russia under immense immense bipartisan pressure um uh from congress not of his own volition because we've heard what he says about russia and he's a big fan and he thinks putin and other authoritarians are great and they've got the right idea um so we know how he feels and how he acts really depends on how much pressure he's under
0: dad any any thoughts or response there
2: well, I mean, it's interesting. I, I agree with uh, Simon 100% about what he said about uh, Obama's weakness that that led Putin to do what he did, and, and not just Putin, but, you know, uh, little rocket man and everybody else, every other evildoer in the world. But um, that was Obama. I, I think that Trump has some kind of a personal issue with the election where he feels psychologically like he doesn't want to admit he had any help um, and I don't really know how much help he really had but the bottom line is um, I don't know if that's gonna stand in the way of him taking strong action against Russia if Putin goes too far I think Trump is showing he's got he's got the cojones he's got um, but you th- you
0: think, he hasn't gone far enough because I guess that's that's what I find surprising is just someone who's grown up their whole life with this, you know, fear or or suspicion about uh, Russia and expansionism or Soviet expansionism. Here's the case where they definitely invaded a sovereign nation. Uh
2: but that you was but that was under Obama's watch and that was outrageous that that happened and, and nobody and we didn't do anything yes I feel terrible about that but uh, that wasn't under Obama's watch that wasn't Trump Trump um, you know and I don't know to what degree there was pressure caused it but Trump certainly did start giving weapons to um, Ukraine which Obama would never do uh, which I think was a good thing I think he needs to do more of that
0: okay uh, this is my last, the last question slash sub- subject I have. Um, I, as I'm sure you know, Dad, have been plagued with this student loan debt uh, since graduating from Columbia Journalism School. I blame mostly you for not being wealthy enough to have just paid for it. Um, <laughs> I, paid, on- I paid. I
2: paid five hundred thousand for you to get into the school. So.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I didn't. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know about. Wasn't that, that enough? <laughs> I wish you would have like spent four hundred thousand to get me and hundred thousand for the tuitions and fees. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I keep. Um, I can't help but notice how uh, people connected with American politics keep going to specifically to Ukraine to enrich themselves. Uh, Paul Manafort among them and I'm just gonna read this excerpt from a New York Times article about Hunter Biden Uh, it was a foreign policy role Joseph Biden enthusiastically embraced during his vice presidency browbeating Ukraine's notoriously corrupt government to clean up its act and one of his most memorable performances came on a trip to Kiev in March 2016 when he threatened to withhold a billion dollars in United States loan guarantees if Ukraine's leaders did not dismiss the country's top prosecutor who had been accused of turning a blind eye to corruption in his own office and among the political elite um as it turns out one of those firms that he was wor- that he was actively investigating was one that um hunter biden worked for that's is, not true though
1: is it is it not no i mean because I think you need to let the reader know when you stopped quoting from the New York Times article. <laughs> it says it says
0: here I'll I'll continue. Among those who had a stake in the outcome was Hunter Biden, Mr. Biden's younger son, who at the time was on the board of an energy company owned by a Ukrainian oligarch who had been in the sights of fired prosecu- uh, who had been in the sights of the fired prosecutor general. Hunter Biden was a Yale-educated lawyer who had served on the board of Amtrak and a number of nonprofit organizations and think tanks but lacks any experience in Ukraine, and just months earlier had been discharged from the Navy Reserve after testing positive for cocaine. Sounds like a pretty cool guy. And then it says he would be paid as much as $50,000 per month in uh, in some months for his work for the company Burisma Holdings. Now, two questions. One, uh, is this uh, w- valid reporting slash worthy of our attention? Second question, how can I go to the Ukraine and make $50,000 per
1: month? Where do I sign up? I think, uh, I think I think your your dad needs to be a yeah. bit more influential for that to happen that easily. God
2: damn it, Dad. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to be vice president at least.
1: Yeah, something like that. Maybe secretary of state. Yeah, Delmer. secretary of state would also
2: work, right? Um. um
1: yeah, that whole story is being uh, manipulated, and the problem is that uh, Ukraine is being caught in the crossfire because they're trying to bring Ukraine into the partisan politics of the United States, and it shouldn't be. The, the timeline... I don't, I'm not, I don't think that there's anything inaccurate in the New York Times article, um, but they, they do make it seem like Hunter Biden having a stake in the outcome of whether the Prosecutor General... Um, is fired or not is like saying Hunter Biden uh, would benefit from him being fired, which isn't true. That's that's the sort of suggestion that that paragraph makes, but isn't explicit and therefore isn't factually inaccurate. It says he has a stake. So that could be one way or the other, right? It could be positive or 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 negative. Um, what happened there was that yes, Hunter Biden did exploit uh, his father's name in order to get himself a cushy contract. But everybody supported, everybody who was interested in fighting corruption in Ukraine, um, supported getting rid of that prosecutor general. And, and uh, Joe Biden was really applauded uh, for putting pressure on the Ukrainian government to try to get rid of him, because the prosecutor general was totally corrupt. And by the time he'd made that speech that... Um, the New York Times is talking about uh, he'd already closed the investigation against Burisma so getting rid of him wasn't going to close you know an an active investigation it had already been sidelined months before Um, and that was part of the reason that they wanted to get rid of him in fact that was the central reason that they wanted to get rid of him they wanted to get rid of the prosecutor general because he had sidelined the investigation into Burisma where Joe Biden's son worked
0: so here's the, the real question that I think applies to my dad. Uh, Simon, are you going to go on Fox News if Joe Biden uh, becomes the nominee to defend against what will clearly be uh, a political attack about the story? Man, because, I don't
1: know if I could face Tucker Carlson. <laughs> <laughs> because
0: because dad, I'm dead. Let's just all remember this conversation. Simon sounds like a reasonable guy, right, Dad?
2: He is a reasonable guy, but listen—you're assuming a fact that's not in evidence. Joe Joe Biden's being attacked by Democrats right now for this. Sure, uh, but but that's because uh, and, and because and because of it, he will not get the nomination.
1: I don't think he's not going to get the nomination because of Ukraine, although that's one of the one of the um, bullets in the arsenal that they're trying to use against him. But not the Democrats. The I mean, that's Rudy Giuliani, who's been spreading that conspiracy theory about. He said uh, he was
0: going to go over there, right? Wasn't he about to get on a plane and go to Kiev and do yeah, something? Yeah,
1: he, he canceled that latest trip because, you know, because that story is totally um, uh, bullshit. And somebody told him to, uh, you know, not. Not stick his nose where it's not his business, I guess. But he's been to Ukraine many times, and there's there's uh, probably several potential conflicts of interests with Rudy Giuliani because he's taking payment from various different uh, Ukrainian politicians in the same and businessmen in the same way that Hunter Biden was benefiting from his proximity to uh, Joe Biden, Giuliani is benefiting from his proximity to Donald Trump. So people, you know, in, in Ukraine are very savvy and they're like, I can pay uh, powerful Americans uh, or people who are close to power in America, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a month because that bolsters my standing and it makes it more more difficult for my enemies in Ukraine to attack me because they know I'm associated with these powerful people. So, you know, the job of Hunter Biden and the job of uh, Rudy Giuliani for these powerful Ukrainians uh, was simply to be associated with them—easiest job in the world.
2: Yeah, and that's called politics as usual. I mean, that's that's the way of the political world, I guess.
1: I, well, I don't know. If, uh, you, I mean, that, my, went, that, view,
2: in, that, went, that went that went on uh, with the Clintons with their, uh, you know, with their. Um, with the trust, I forget what you call that thing, but um, where she was, he was paid. Bill Clinton was paid tons of money for going over and giving speeches while she was Secretary of State. I mean,
0: political look, political corruption or Im- implied co- political corruption, like oh, we want to you know come stay at the Trump Hotel and have a gala dinner there and spend uh, millions of dollars, it, just with the implicit idea that maybe. Uh, Trump will look favorably upon us. That's, that, that's always going to happen. The real question is, uh, Dad, are you going to defend uh, Joe Biden against these uh, p- partisan unfounded attacks about his son's uh, corrupt dealings in Ukraine during the general election?
2: well i don't have the facts i mean simon seems to no no i i don't i mean simon simon seems to be a whole lot closer to this so i think it's up to to him to face tucker than me yeah
1: god i don't i don't wish that upon anyone god like with him with his like sort of half a gape open mouth befuddled stare i don't know if i could live it down all right. Well, dad,
0: do you have any more questions for Simon or vice versa?
2: No, I just would like to say thanks, Simon, for being on the, on the podcast. And uh, again, for, um, you know, all he's done. I mean, it's incredible uh, what what risks he took and how he was almost lost because uh, of where he put himself. But it's amazing. People like that are should be commended. Well, thank you guys for having me.
1: I really like the podcast because it reminds me a little bit of uh, my relationship with my dad, and we don't really see eye to eye politically. The only thing we do agree on is uh, on stuff where it concerns Russia, but anything on this side of the Atlantic, (laughs) uh, we can barely have a conversation without keeping it civil. So you two are an example to us all. um, And uh, I hope that uh, what you're doing here becomes infectious and spreads.
2: I appreciate that because I I agree and I think uh, one of the problems I have with this with the whole division in this country is that it's become so uh, nasty that people can't discuss openly differences without you know basically being at each other's throats and I think that's that's what I enjoy about this podcast. Russ and I do love each other. We're father, son. And, um, you know, I like to spend time with him and stuff, but, uh, about politics, we just disagree on. And that's, you know, that's, that's life in America. Yeah. You're free to have your own decisions or your own opinions.
0: You got to slug it out. We yeah. all got to slug it out. Yeah.
2: And if people keep <laughs> getting so divided and don't talk, how is anybody ever going to, you know, solve any of the issues? Amen. Amen to that.